He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's one of my favorite things we do every, every Easter. Let me say it again. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And because of that, because the most unexpected thing in the history of things happened, everything has changed for us. Let's talk about it. Great pastor Tim Keller uh, proposes a thought experiment. Here's what he suggests. Let's suppose we assemble the greatest minds on the planet. So the most successful business people, the most influential thought leaders, like just the most brilliant people that we could find. And we gather them all in a room and we give them this assignment. The assignment is simply this. I want you to make me the most famous human who ever existed. All right, so like I want, uh, you know, buildings built in my name. I want a few statues. I would like whole empires to be devoted to following me. Uh, like 2,000 years from today, I want people to still be talking about me and gathering and writing songs about me and meeting in their living rooms and discussing things that I've said. Now, we take all these brilliant people, we put them in a room, and we give them that assignment. And let's assume for a second that they don't pick up rocks to stone me for my insane narcissism, right? Um, let's, Let's say that they're like, okay, okay, we'll figure this out. Do you know what none of them would come up with? What none of them would suggest is this, that I be born in an obscure backwater town in an unimportant nation that I live my entire life avoiding getting involved in anything powerful or political, that I die just, uh, you know, in my early 30s, not having written down one thing, totally abandoned by all of the people who followed me, except a handful of women who followed me and a teenage disciple. Not one person would choose that path. In fact, I would submit to you, no, not, not one human mind, no matter how brilliant, would choose the life that Jesus lived to change this world. And yet it was that life, right? Like, e- even if you don't believe in Jesus, you have to acknowledge it is that path that Jesus walked that divided human history into two parts, that, cha- that even now, 2,000 years later, is affecting daily billions of lives on earth, this life that Jesus led. And the only reason that has happened, the reason that this insignificant life 2,000 years ago is something that we're still talking about and gathering for is because he has risen. That is the only explanation. Rationally, that is the only possible option. It's what we celebrate today. And and we have to acknowledge this. Jesus died a nobody. Like Jesus died like an inconvenience that a bunch of local unimportant politicians just wanted to get out of the way. He died a nobody. And had he not risen, none of us would know his name. But he did. And we do. Here's how it happened. Now, there was a man named Joseph, a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea, and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Then he took it down, he wrapped it in linen cloth, and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. 
The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they went home and prepared spices and perfumes, but they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and they went to the tomb and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered it, they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they're wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. I don't know if you ever feel this, but often I read the Bible and I wish there was a director's cut like the extended version, because a lot of times I read stories like this, and I have more questions than answers, you know, at the end of the story. Like uh, this story in particular, Luke, I wish you would have just included something between chapter 23 and 24, because we know almost nothing about what, as it turns out, was the most important moment in human history. That moment When in the dark of the tomb, like lying there, Jesus' dead, lifeless body became alive again. And I'm so curious about that moment, about what it was like. Do you ever think about that? I think about that all the time. Like, I I always wonder, this might be weird to say, but I always wonder, like, was there a noise? Have you ever thought about that? Like, I don't know what sort of a noise I would picture. Maybe like a whooshing noise. I don't, like, like when someone comes back to life, is there a noise? Or was it just he was dead in the silence and then he's alive? I think about this. In that split second when Jesus came to life, like did he open his eyes right away? Start looking around? Or maybe did he just rest there for a minute realizing what had happened? Like, did Jesus, when he came to life, did he sit up like he had just woken from a nightmare? Or maybe he, he, he just was at peace with it and he realized what had happened and he just started smiling while he lay, lay there. I'm curious about that first breath. Like, do you think that first breath after being dead for three days, do you think it was a gasp? <gasps> like he'd been holding his breath for three days? Is that what it was like? Or was it just a gentle, soft breath and he started breathing again? I always wondered this, how long did he lay there in the dark? It says Joseph wrapped him in linen. Like when he woke up, was he like, oh gosh, what is all, you know, like how long did he lay there before he got up and started unwrapping himself? Like this is the most important moment in the history of the universe And we know so little about it. It was a moment that was entirely shared between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And while we don't know a lot of details about that split second when he came to life, we have felt for 2,000 years the effects of it. What I like in the story is the angel, and angels, they bear with us as humans a lot, but the angel's like, "You, you remember he told you this, right? Um, And he did. He talked about this moment all the time. He talked about dying and rising from the dead. Uh, He even predicted how dramatically his resurrection would shape and reshape the earth. 
Um, we've been in a series over Lent these last 40 days called The Gospel in 12 Stories. And what we're observing is this, is Jesus, he knows the cross is coming. He's got all these followers. Uh, he doesn't panic because he also knows the resurrection's coming. Um, and what he starts doing is just telling these stories, these, we call them parables, but these like teaching devices that were like full of meaning for the people who listened to him. Um, and it, we've looked at 11 of them over the last 40 days. I want to go back and look at story number 12, but it's not towards the end. It's actually at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 5. And it is the first parable that Jesus tells in the Gospel of Luke. And what's amazing about it is you see in this first moment where he starts using this teaching device that he clearly understands what his resurrection would do to the earth and how it would shatter everything. So the story comes out of Luke 5. He's at the house of a man named Levi. Levi's a tax collector, which means like he's just like a really awful sinner. Nobody likes him, except Jesus. That was kind of his thing. He liked really awful sinners. Um, and that, of course, all the respectable people were bothered by that. And so he's starting to deal with all that sort of stuff. And into that moment, he gives this first parable. Here's what he says. Luke writes, he told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they'll have torn the new garment and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new. For they say, the old is better. Now, if you're confused by all that, you're in good company. Um, like, people understood what he was talking about, but they, they did not know why he was saying these things or, or the implications of these things. This is why the angels are always like, you remember he told you. Like, it, it wasn't a He told you. He literally told you. And people were like, oh, yeah, I guess he mentioned it a couple times. Um, in hindsight, people began to understand what he was talking about. And I think his point is really simple with these three metaphors that he uses. He's contrasting a new thing and an old thing, right? And he hits us with three different examples to hammer home three separate points. The first one is this. You shouldn't destroy the new thing to fix the old thing. Does that make sense? Of course. And he says this. If you try to fit the new thing into the old thing, it's going to burst it all apart and it'll be ruined. Makes sense, right? The last thing he says is, once you get a taste of the good stuff, I mean the good stuff, that's what you're really going to want. And all of this, the new thing, the good stuff, this thing he's talking about, he's looking forward to that day when he starts breathing again after being crucified. And all of a sudden that stuff is available to us. That moment in the dark when his lifeless body drew breath again. That moment, it was not about fixing broken old human religion. It's not what it was about. Jesus is the new garment. You just have to throw that old one, that religious garment away. There's no, no, no longer any doctrines or like behaviors that you have to master to get to God. There's just a Jesus to get to know. That's all there is. And by the way, this Jesus says that you're loved and that you're worthy of his very life. Not only that, he says, hey, that moment in the dark when I draw that breath, something is going to be burst apart. It won't be able to contain what I've brought to earth. And you look at that, the way of this humble, servant-hearted Jesus, like the, he just loved people. And he lived on this earth, and when he died, it looked like his strategy was like a total failure, totally ineffective, to, like didn't work at all. 
until that breath, right? Because when he took that breath, he did something that the most powerful, the smartest, the most influential people who have ever lived have never been able to do. He conquered death. And if he did that, he's right about everything. If he did that, he has changed fundamentally everything that matters for us. And in that moment in the dark when he took that breath, it's, it's like a taste of the good stuff. He called it eternal life, life unconquerable, real life, abundant life. It's like, oh, that really exists, and he has it. It's like an old, finely crafted wine, and it tastes so good. Once you taste it, you're never going to want that Boone's Farm again. <laughs> if you know, you know, right? Um, and so what I think happens, the moment that his dead body starts breathing is the whole of the universe got boiled down to this one singular question. What are you going to do with this Jesus? What are you going to do with this Jesus? When he started breathing, nothing else really mattered. This guy who conquered death, everything else is irrelevant. Everything is shattered apart until we answer this question, what are you going to do with this Jesus? Because here's the implication. If he started breathing again, then everything he said about you is true. Everything. You know what he said about you? He said that because of him, you are the beloved child of God. God is not angry with you. He is crazy about you. You are totally righteous in his sight because of Jesus and what he's accomplished. You are totally free from shame and from condemnation, and there is nothing ever in your life that could separate you from God's love. Nothing could ever make him love you less. And so in Christ, you have the secure identity as the beloved of God with whom he is well pleased. And that will never change because he started breathing again. And not only that, but if he started breathing again, then everything he said about God's kingdom is also true. Like this idea that there's this kingdom of love and mercy and justice that's nothing like the kingdoms of this earth, that it's crashing down right around us, this kingdom where every wrong is made right, where every human life is seen, every human life has incredible value and dignity, this kingdom where all broken things are restored and redeemed, and it really is coming to earth. And we've been invited to partner with God in it. Like the greatest redemption and renovation project the universe has ever seen is something he has invited you into as the purpose of your life. And if he started breathing again, then it's real and it's all true. We have this incredible identity, this divine purpose because of that breath. And honestly, if he didn't take that breath, like honestly, if his body just laid in that tomb until somebody stole it and hid it away, just rationally we have to acknowledge there is no way we would still be talking about Jesus 2,000 years later if that happened. Because at best, he would be like a footnote in philosophy textbooks. Like you know what happened to first century rabbis who don't come back from the dead? nothing. I bet all of us together could not mention one other first century rabbi that we know the name of. Nothing happens. We forget them. But he did take that breath. And because of that, you have a secure identity and you have a divine purpose to live for. Hey, let's try something different today. Um, 
You know what's also true? If he took that breath, it doesn't just mean some things about us, but if he took that breath, that means he's still alive, right? And if he took that breath and he's still alive, then he can talk for himself. And I bet a big part of why you showed up today looking all nice, you all look nice in that outfit someone else picked out for you, clearly. Um, And I bet part of the reason that you showed up today is not just family obligations and not just because this is what you do on Easter, but I bet part of it was the hope that he was alive and that maybe, just maybe he'd have something to say to you specifically. There's something that he could say and you'd actually hear his voice and that you wanted to hear his voice. Yeah, me too. That's what I want. So I want to do a little experiment here. I have a moment together. I think the problem in most of our lives, mine included, is not that Jesus didn't come back from the dead because he did. The problem for most of us is we struggle to let our souls really believe it, really believe that he's risen. And so we say, hey, he is risen. He is risen indeed, brother. Um, But if it's all the same, I'm going to just live my life like I have to figure everything out on my own, right? And we go through life that way. But I want us to stop and to pause and to really consider the implications of our risen Christ. Let's go back to the tomb for a second. I want you to do as best you can in your mind's eye picture that you're sitting in that tomb. And if it helps, you can bow your head, you can close your eyes, however you want. I'm not going to violate your trust. I just want us to have a moment together. For the purpose of this exercise, let's picture this tomb, not pitch black. There's just enough light and you're sitting there in the tomb, and in front of you is the lifeless body of Jesus in the cleft of the rock wrapped in those linens. Can you picture that? And as you do, you're looking at the lifeless body of Jesus, and you're thinking about everything that this man meant to you. You know, here's a man who made you feel seen for the first time in your life, maybe the only time. Here's a man who related to you as if you were born for an extraordinary purpose. And you started to believe it. And you started to think, man, everything could be different because of this guy. And just when you dared to hope, he was taken from you and killed. And so in your mind's eye, I want you to just picture... You're sitting there, you're looking at the lifeless body of Jesus. Can you see it? And because of the weight of that moment, inevitably, slowly, all of those words about you that Jesus kind of took away slowly start coming back. Do you know the words I'm talking about? Um, It's the stuff that kind of we fear is true about us. The stuff that we fear, well, that, that might, might name me a little bit. Some of it, it's so deep in us, we can run from this stuff our entire life. These are the words the enemy uses to name us, the words that our shame just holds on to and looks for evidence of, the words that condemn us. And they're a little bit different for all of us, but they're very condemning. It might be a word like Failure. It might be a word like unlovable, or maybe it's weak, fraud, perverted, 
victim, dirty, disappointment, stupid, coward, sinner. You know, it's true of every human, every human, we carry words like that deep in our soul. And sometimes it's something that someone spoke over us once and it broke us. Sometimes it's something, it, it's a little vague. It, we just feel it. We can't quite put our finger on it, but it is that word that condemns us and we all have it. And we spend so much of our life running from those words, trying to prove something to ourselves, prove something to other people, prove we are something or prove we're not something. We run from them and we run from them, but in the dark of that tomb, my hunches, they come back with a vengeance and those words aren't silent any longer. So if you, if you trust me, I'd I, I ask, you know, would you just put your hands out like this if you feel comfortable? Um, here's what I want you to picture. Whatever those words are for you, I want you to picture that kind of like they just, they fall out of your soul into your hands. You're sitting in the dark, across from the lifeless body of Jesus, and you're just holding in your hands all of those words that you feel, or that you fear name you. It's painful to look at those words. I, I have a, my own list in my head. Um, but could we just take a second just before God and just try to name what we're holding in our hands? Just try to name what some of those are for us. Take a minute. So there we are, sitting in the dark of that tomb with the lifeless body of Jesus holding in our hands all that condemns us, all that we fear names us. Can you see it? And as we're preoccupied with those words, uh, we hear a noise and we look up and what do we see? But there is Jesus, and he's not dead at all. He's just sitting there looking at us like he most surely did. And you notice he looks at you, and he looks down at your hands. And he looks at you again, and he looks down again, and he sees all that you're holding, all those ugly names that have stuck to you your entire life, all of those things that you run from that bring you shame, that condemn you. And he looks at those words and he looks at you and he says, what, what are you holding there? That's not you. That's not your name. That's never been who you are and that's never been who I've created you to be. I know your real name and I have risen so that you can walk in that identity. And then he proceeds to tell you your real name, what you are to him 
And he starts speaking his words over you, who you are, what your real identity is. Now here's the thing. I'm not going to tell you what he says because I don't know. I'm not Jesus. If he's alive, he can speak for himself. He doesn't need me to speak for him. So will you just ask him right now? I'm going to give you a minute to just ask him, Jesus, what are those words that you would speak over me? And then I want you to take a risk and trust that what he speaks into your mind is actually his voice. And so right now in this moment, um, it might feel weird, this might not be your background, but would you just ask him, Jesus, what do you call me? What is it that you declare over me, risen Jesus? What's my identity with you? Could we just ask him together right now for a minute? Think about the moment when Mary got to the tomb and she thought he was the gardener until he said her name. Part of how we know he's risen is because he still speaks to us. He speaks our true name. And I want to do something that we never almost do at Pulpit Rock. We've done it a couple times. Uh, But I, I want to ask if some of you would take a risk and maybe just shout out one or two words that you feel like he spoke over you this morning. I know there's a high degree of risk in that, but um, hey, it's Easter, so let's swing for the fences here. Um, What did you hear from him in that tomb? Anyone? Say that again. Forgiven. Yes, you are. Beloved. Yes. Beloved child of God. That's what you are. A little louder. You are mine. You You belong to him. Worthwhile. Valued. I heard two. Special. Yes, you are. There's another one over here. Adopted, yes. Wanted, amazing. You are to him. I heard one. Innocent, loved. Accepted, amen. Anything else? Anyone want to throw one out? Trusted. I love that one. Say it again. Enough. Enough. Ah. Let me close with a question. 
These are some good words. How is it that we are all kind of hearing the same sort of thing in a moment like this? Let me answer my own question. Maybe because he is actually risen. Maybe because he really does desire to speak to you about who you are. Maybe because he's not dead anymore. And he does still speak to us. And he has given us the only identity and the only purpose worth having in this world. And if we would just let ourselves believe it and walk in it, every day could be Easter. In the dark of that tomb, he really did take that breath. And because of that, everything he declares about you is true. And everything he declares about his kingdom is true and it will happen. May we live as if he is alive. Jesus, we come to you today desperately needing to hear your voice. And so we cling to what you've said to us and we receive it. Despite what we may feel, we receive it, Lord. You are the only one who conquered death and you are the only one worthy enough to declare to us our identity and our purpose for life. So we receive it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for all that you've given us. We cannot fathom what it took, but we are grateful. Help us to live in it every day. Amen. Well, we want to celebrate, and we have a fun moment to celebrate with. We're going to do some baptisms. You know, when Jesus took that breath, everything changed for us. So we want to worship him, we want to declare that, and a few people are going to declare that through the unique act of baptism, which really is the Easter story. So it, when you are baptized, you go under the water, which is like Jesus dying, and then this is the most important part of baptism, you come up out of the water, um, which symbolizes his resurrection from the dead. And as these people do that, uh, we're going to be singing and worshiping. I want to hear y'all celebrate them as they come up out of the water, um, even in the middle of the song. And uh, they, they are testifying to what we have all experienced. Jesus has risen again. We believe it, and it changes everything for us. Let's worship.